Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and if we are talking about problematic Halloween costumes, mine is Crazy Old Cat Lady. I did that in graduate school. As like something you are wanting to be in the future? <laughs> no, uh, so I had like a bathrobe and I left curlers in my hair. I had like smeared red lipstick on and then I had a bunch of stuffed cats. Uh, did you throw them at people? Cause that's really- I probably did. I mean, we went to several, <laughs> several bars to celebrate Halloween that night. And you know, it's it was funny at the time, but you know, not my shiniest feminist moment <laughs> for sure. Okay, my most problematic Halloween costume did you ever see the show Toddlers and Tiaras? I mean, I've heard of it. I was a toddler beauty pageant contestant. So of all the things that you haven't seen, you have seen Toddlers and Tiaras. Yes. Okay. I can't get you to watch like anything, but that you've seen. Yes. Okay. Great. It made me feel good about myself and my parenting choices. <laughs> so today we're not talking about Halloween costumes, but this is our Halloween episode and we are going to talk about cults. Hey, you know what we're really bad at? A lot of things. We're really bad about telling people what our next episode was going to well, be. Well, you know, we have ideas. We get excited about them. We say, let's do that in our next episode. And then we talk about it and we have, you know, a different idea. It's just excitement. So we're just distracted easily. Yeah, we're just very enthusiastic. We are going to have another conversation about suffrage, dare I say, in our next episode. <laughs> but we want to have a Halloween episode, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about cults today, and that means, just as a warning, that we're gonna briefly mention, not talk about this stuff in any great detail, but as we're gonna mention manipulation, abuse, controlling behavior very briefly talk about uh, mass suicide and bodily injury. And at some point in the show today, I'm going to say the F word as a part of a quote of someone. So if you want to listen to this at a different time or not at all uh, understood, but we are going to talk about cults. And That's we didn't want anybody to be surprised. Yeah. I mean, we're still going to surprise you, but we didn't want you to be surprised <laughs> in a bad way. So before we talk about cults, we just want to clarify how to talk about cults. And there's a few things that you want to avoid when you discuss them, especially in a academic manner, which is kind of how we're going to try and discuss them today. You want to avoid disparaging a religion, a belief system, or a spirituality just because you're unfamiliar with it. It's okay to not be familiar with belief systems, but when you dismiss them or say, you know, that's hippy dippy new age crap, you know, you don't want to disparage someone else's belief system. You don't want to use the word cult lightly, and you don't want to use it as a way to dismiss someone else's religion. And you don't want to jokingly or intentionally confuse the term cult member with avid supporter. So people say this a lot about people who have Apple products, right? They're in the cult of Apple. I think that's actually even a website cult of Apple. But there are certain brands or certain activities that people are very, very, very avid supporters of. 
And that doesn't mean you belong to a cult, right? I, I own like 80 Yeti products. I don't belong to any type of cult. So because you don't go to meetings <laughs> and you don't want to make Kool-Aid jokes because yeah, please don't. That's not those cool. are those are very common. People make Kool-Aid comments. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, all of those kinds of jokes. But you're actually referencing a mass suicide, including, you know, people killing their own children. So really not something to joke about and not something that we're going to joke about. So we're going to talk today about cults. And first, we have to talk about what makes them so hard to define. And hard to talk about. And I mean, hard to talk really about. really is. Without offending people, right? And because it's very hard to understand how a person gets involved in a cult if you've never been down that path. And I, I have never been down that path, to my knowledge. So it's hard to, it's very, very easy to look at these individuals and say, I don't know how you fell for it. And most people who um, leave cults use the boiling frog analogy, right? Like a frog would never jump into a pot of boiling water. And if you put him in one, he would jump right back out. But if you put a frog in, this is kind of a gross metaphor, but if you put, put a frog in room temperature water, he'll be happy. And if the degrees increase very, very slowly, less likely to notice a change, less likely to realize something dangerous is happening because again, it's just one degree hotter than it was a minute ago. Um, and Until it's sooner, like far too late. And then sooner or later, or, I mean, sooner rather than later, you're in a dangerous situation that, that, and you don't know how you got there. So it gets ratcheted up and, and, and you're going to hear things today and you're going to be like, how did this crazy or how did this guy convince people to follow him? How did these people fall for it? It's just very hard from the outside to understand what the people on the inside were like. And the other reason it's hard to talk about and define cults is because the term cult has been used to describe everything. everything. So at, at some point in time, every major religion was referred to as a cult. When they're new, they're breaking the status quo. They're maybe dangerous. So they're cults. And it is non-traditional system of beliefs. And when we say traditional, right, that's status quo. So traditions change over time. But it's not a term typically used by sociologists even today, even in talking about groups that most of us would feel comfortable about calling a cult. So if it's a religious movement, if it is a new religion or new spiritual movement, Sociologists tend to call those new religious movements. They take a very neutral stance because they look at it from that historical perspective and say Catholicism was once thought to be a cult. And, you know, basically time will tell. It's not that they take a neutral position on abuse or bodily injury or anything like that, but they don't dismiss new religious movements as cults out of hand. And the word, it, it's a pejorative term, right? Automatically has negative associations. There is no good cult. No. And not all cults are religious. Yeah, and I think that's something that kind of trips people up. Because when I hear cult, I do immediately associate it with religion. And that's how some people get a cult started. That's how they trick people. Because it's not a religion. And they say that, right? This is not a religion. And so people think, therefore, it's not a cult. So if I'm trying to figure out what is a cult and what is not a cult, do you have a checklist for me, maybe? I do have a checklist, but I'll say, again, all of these are terms that we 
kind of have to come to a general understanding or definition of. So there's some su subjectivity here. So general characteristics of cults, there's a shared commitment to an extreme ideology. The leader embodies the ideology, and usually that leader is a charismatic speaker with a magnetic personality. There's a very strict hierarchy. There's That's interesting to me. Why? Because would, I would think like um, the way to get people in would be like super welcome them. There, it is super welcoming, but but you have to work your way up to be to oh, so like a privilege to meet the leader. Exactly. You oh, have to okay. invest a high level of commitment. That's time and money. And usually you have to recruit other people to join. They claim to have answers to life's biggest questions and religions do that as well. But they claim usually claim to have easy answers. Or they claim to have been the first person to figure out this answer to life's biggest questions. And usually they require you to change. So they have a recipe for self-improvement or a recipe for change. And that turns you into a true believer. And when we talk about uh, some specific examples, you'll see all of these things be embodied by the organizations that we discuss. They have formal and informal systems of control and obedience is rewarded. And so when we say formal, we mean that there are penalties or penance or punishments for not being obedient. And when we say informal, we just mean you're embarrassed or you feel like you're getting a cold shoulder or you feel like everybody thinks down on you if you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do. Will all cults have all of these things? Most cults, all cults will have some of them. and. That's why it's hard to draw hard and fast lines around organizations, especially when they're beginning, especially when you don't have a lot of information. They don't have tolerance for internal disagreement. They don't have tolerance for external scrutiny. You want to look for people who isolate members and penalize you for leaving, emphasizing special doctrines, inappropriate levels of loyalty to the leaders, dishonoring the family unit. Generally, that means trying to separate you from your family. Um, if it's part of a major religion, then it's like a splinter group. It's a radicalized group. And I know you're going to talk about that a little bit. There's often danger, sometimes physical danger. Um, but again, it slowly ratchets up. So no one joins a physically dangerous cult. You join a self-improvement organization and you get in deeper and deeper. And a lot of times members seem to go missing from their family. So they go long periods of time with very limited communication. And the only reason there's very limited communication is cults don't want to deal with missing person reports. So you can call your oh, mom okay. or you can, you can text her, but every 90 days, there's not a lot of in-person visits, right? Because if you're being indoctrinated, external influences can wake you up. And so you're, contact with with the world outside becomes more and more limited. And I'm sure you want to talk to us about something historical. I've been talking for a couple of minutes. <laughs> I didn't say anything about history. So there are a lot of things to really love about this country. And there are a lot of things to not so much love about this country. So one of the things I think we all love is democracy, right? We all get to have a say in our lives and who governs us and how everything runs. We started in the 1800s to have this belief that everyone should have a say in government and how their lives run. We meant that as a political idea, but some people in America started applying that to religious ideas. 
So at the same time that we see like this expansion of democracy across this country, we also see the development of what historically we call a bunch of new religious movements. So this is slightly different than um, the way a sociologist would look at this. For a historian, a new religious movement is any group that started after the year 1800. So new in this context is last 200 years. Yes. Okay. Again, historians, very, very popular people. So these new groups that pop up in the 1830s are just this massive time of change for us. We see a lot of these groups popping up. They tend to be fringe groups, peripheral groups. They are not culturally dominant. That's one of the key things you got to remember about these groups. They tended to be nonviolent, though that is not always true. And then to be classified as a new religious movement, you had to have a shared set of consistent beliefs, scriptures, texts, formalized meetings, and some sort of organization. So some of these movements that were at one point considered new religious movements are now just considered kind of standard Protestant churches. So, so the best example is the Seventh-day Adventist. I was going to say, so it starts as a new religious movement. It seems like it is fits some of those standards we just talked about, right? It's yes. got unique doctrine. Usually um, a charismatic leader shared commitment to an unusual ideology because it's a new ideology mm-hmm. claims to have answers to life's biggest questions but not the the more controlling punitive aspects necessarily and is able to survive more than two generations oh that's that's like a a test a standard well, because if you're if you're really building a cult of personality around one person, that will generally fall apart when that person dies or leaves the group for some reason. Like goes to jail. Like goes to jail. <laughs> Which we might bring up later. We're definitely going to bring that up <laughs> later. But if it can sustain itself, then that really does build these formalized structures that produce a more mainstream church. Um, Again, another great example here is the Church of Latter-day Saints. A lot of Americans in the 1800s thought, oh, if Joseph Smith dies, this whole thing's going to fall apart. That didn't happen. It's now a pretty standardized, formally recognized mainstream American religion. Yeah, and and most people would not refer to the Church of Latter-day Saints anymore as a cult, even though at the time it seemed to tick a lot of those boxes. Yes, absolutely. I I don't think nobody would refer to it as a cult because, I mean— there's people that think that Baptists are cults. Sure, absolutely. And just like lots of other groups, there are splinter groups of right. the Church of Latter-day Saints, which many people would refer to as a cult. Right, and the FDLS is usually the one that people think of. That's the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. Okay, so I want to talk to you about an 1800s group that you may or may not have heard of called the Oneidas. So uh, I know about the silverware. Okay, so it's start. Just- is this about where my silverware comes from? Are you telling me it I have is. I've been supporting a cult all this time buying my Oneida silverware? No. Okay. But if you would have bought it in like 1850, yes. Okay, interesting. And also just to clarify, we're not talking about the Native American Oneidas. We sure are not. No. Okay. No. So there was a Native American tribe called the Oneidas, and that's what the and they are completely separate from this story. So the the city or the town of Oneida, New York, was named after the Native American tribe. And then the silverware making 
cult commune a commune moved into that town and named themselves after it so different organization yes okay all right, so the Oneidas begin with John Humphrey Noyes, who was born in 1811. Um, Noyes has this, he calls it a religious conversion in his early 20s. And he believes from this point on, and I'm using my language, not his, that he is something of a prophet, that he has this new way of understanding the world and God's teachings that nobody else has. So one of his early beliefs that becomes really important is that the second coming of Jesus has already happened. A lot mm-hmm. of these groups that are formed in the 1830s and 40s, that's their main thing is they're looking for the second coming of Jesus. Noise is going to say, no, that already happened. It happened in the year 70 AD. 70? So only, yeah, yeah, like seven zero. Okay. We so not only did it happen, it happened like a long time ago. Wow. Because the second coming of Jesus has already happened, we have the ability to perfect humankind and become free from sin. We can build essentially a heaven on earth. So that idea is called perfectionism. Now, obviously people in the 1800s were not perfect. I mean, I think slavery is a great example of that. Yeah. So what noise decides is that what people are doing up to this point has obviously not perfected humanity. We have to do something new. We have to try new things and fix the problems in society. So he's gonna form the United Community It's based on communalism, the idea we're all going to live together and share possessions and property. And then he's going to take that one step further, and we're going to see the development of the concepts of complex marriage, male continence, mutual criticism, and ascending fellowship. So let's let's start with complex marriage. All marriages are complex. (laughs) Yeah, no, not in this way, though. So he gets married in 1838. Which is interesting to me because in 1834, he's already writing about what a horrible institution marriage is. Great. And yet, four years later, he gets married. So he already has begun within his very close inner circle to experiment with this idea of complex marriage. I think a more modern way to understand this might be wife swapping. Okay. So are you saying that all of them? Well, hold on. we're not to the all of them. We're just into like a group of like six couples right now. Very small. Okay. So they all live together. Well, not quite yet. We're getting there. What you're and saying is they all right. start cheating on their spouses. Well, it's not cheating, right? Because everyone's aware of it and supposedly everyone consents. So they're all, they're swingers is what they're you're telling swingers. me. Yes. Okay. Okay. But this was scandalous. And so to avoid arrest, because you could get arrested for adultery, him and his followers are going to move off to Oneida and they start this new community where they will be able to write the codes and laws for their little group and nobody will get arrested for adultery. So once we get to the community, complex marriage changes a little bit. So it, it, it a little bit sounds like they formed this community to get away with either polygamy or at the very least a swingers lifestyle. So their term that they're going to use is free love. It's a free love community. Okay. So I want to read a little bit of their handbook. Of course you do. Because there's some stuff in here that is so interesting. And then there's other stuff that you're just like, how how did we get from point A to point B? Well, what's interesting to me is in the 1800s, marriage was not an institution that favored 
women, right? It wasn't, it was not something that did favors for women. We basically went from being property of our parents or our fathers to being property of our spouses. The only women who were free from that were widows. And even then, you know, widows were pitiful. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting and potentially, depending on where the story is going, a good thing (laughs) that we're trying to tear down some of that that part of the institution of marriage. I mean, I'm not saying get rid of marriage. I'm married, but to change what it meant to be married. Now, I don't, I don't know where this is okay, going. So you're, you're right on the right track because noise is going to write. Well, therefore we are clear that marriage as a system of ownership is to be abolished. It does not necessarily follow that sex ought to be obliterated. So he's writing and he's saying marriage is terrible. It's terrible for the men. It's terrible for the women. It becomes a system of ownership. The men own the women. And by the way, he's also an abolitionist. So he's very much against slavery. He sees these things as interconnected, but he doesn't want to live a celibate life. So marriage is flawed, but we have to figure out a way to have sex without marriage. And the answer is? And the answer is free love. He goes on to write, free love does not mean freedom to love today and leave tomorrow, nor freedom to take a woman's person and keep our property to ourselves. So he's really trying to lay out the boundaries of what is and what is not free love. And what they're going to decide essentially is that the community of adults is married to each other. So this is not sex outside of marriage. It's just a complex marriage. Every man is married to every woman. Oh my. (laughs) Yes. Now- Whose children are whose? That's a great question. And we're going to get there. Okay. So part of complex marriage is the idea that we are all married to each other and we should all hold each other in the same esteem, which means we cannot have special relationships being formed. So if you are constantly in the presence of one other person, if you are constantly trying to engage in a sexual, sexual relationship with one specific person, that relationship will be broken apart. Because you might put that person ahead of the group as a whole. So I can't have a favorite husband. No, you cannot. And then to make sure that everyone is properly inducted into this idea of complex marriage, we're going to use another concept called ascending fellowship. So basically, noise recognizes that it is very likely that if you have two teenagers, they might fall in love with each other. Mm -hmm. So ascending fellowship is designed to prevent that from happening. So the older members of the group are going to initiate the younger members into sexual activity. Nope. Don't like this. (laughs) Um, That starts as young as 14. No. Now there is supposedly an idea of consent here. So the young women were theoretically allowed to say no. However, when you take into account the hierarchy and the social standing and the pressure a person in that situation might feel if an older and well-respected member of the community chose them for their partner. You mean you theoretically can say no, but are you really going to? So the older men would pick young women. The older women would pick young men. Nope. So the idea was that, especially for the young men being with older women, if those older women were past the age of menopause, then they could initiate these young men into sex without the possibility of unwanted children. I'm going to just go ahead and say that noise is not super fond of kids. He's going to 
couch this in a little bit of a different way. And he's going to say that he saw his wife go through, I think, five pregnancies and four of the children died or were stillborn. And he says that's just too much of a burden for women to bear. So we should lower the number of children we're having. But another way to look at this is like he just really does not want a bunch of kids running around this commune. Well, and if you have a child, do you have special relationships that form between parents and children? Parents tend to put their children first over communities. Like there's a lot of reasons he might not want this. So he pretends that it's to protect families and women from the trauma of losing children and and preventing these special relationships, but he just doesn't want children there. It is my conjecture. It is my personal conjecture. He never wrote that down. So tell Um, me in the most academic way possible, how, how a group of adults in the 1800s who are all practicing free love, um, how do they avoid having a whole bunch of kids? So I'm just going to read you the handbook because I think (laughs) that's the best way to do this. So um, this is a practice called male continence. And the handbook says a couple would engage in sexual congress without the man ever ejaculating either during intercourse or afterward. This practice is going to last from 1848 to 1868. And during that time where we have about 200 to 250 people all together, we only have 40 children born. So as a form of birth control, it's not completely ineffective. I have no comments regarding that section yeah we're just gonna move on of the handbook (laughs) i I am interested in mutual criticism and and you'll see these same things that we have been talking about start to it becomes more and more insidious Mm -hmm. right there are more and more ways of isolating people or emphasizing these kinds of special doctrines and coming up with these special terms to define things and Again, dishonoring the traditional family unit, and it's physically dangerous. So you see, as it starts as something that sounds great, right? Like, we're going to share property, and we're going to support each other, and we're going to live in this communal um, environment, and we're going to, you know, all love each other, and that might sound really pleasant. And once you get into this situation, things become less and less pleasant and more and more intense. By degrees. And harder to leave, which is what mutual criticism is going to do. So mutual criticism is this practice that's formed so that people can find their own flaws. Uh, Noise comes to believe that most people are not aware of their sins, flaws, annoying habits. So in mutual criticism, we're going to pick one person a night. That person is going to go around the room and everyone in the room is going to share very publicly all of the problems that they have with this person. (laughs) so it could be you're lazy you're selfish you don't pay attention your cooking is bad you know whatever it is if we go through 200 people and everyone tells you something bad about yourself by the end of it you might come out of that room thinking oh my gosh I am a terrible person I'm not smart I'm lazy I'm not very brave and so that person that's been so broken down is not gonna want to leave the group This group is protecting me. I obviously can't protect myself. Why did people go in for this? What is the supposed benefit of being put in the middle of a room and criticized by every single member of my community? So the supposed benefit is that you would grow from it. Noise is basically going to make this argument that, you know, 
we all have that one coworker, right? Where we wouldn't, we all just love to tell them what their problems <laughs> I mean, are. Yes. And maybe that person would be aware of their issues and could work on them and could fix them. So this is supposed to be like a way for you to confront your own issues. Of course, there's one member of the community that never has to go through it. Do you want to take a guess? I'm guessing it's the leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noise thought that it would be sort of undignified for the members of the community to confront their leader in this way. So he doesn't go through it unless he purposely chooses to. And there are a couple instances where he does this. But again, he's the leader. He's in charge. You're not going to criticize him in the way that you might criticize someone with a lesser standing in the group. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. Oh, he works too hard for us, guys. (laughs) Too dedicated. He needs to take some time off. So tell me about women in the Oneida community. So this is so interesting because I think so much of what noise does is so damaging to women. And yet he has all of these ideas that are light years ahead of the rest of the country. So he believes that women are the equals of men, you know, for all God's children, then we're all created equal. He thought that women shouldn't be burdened with childcare. Which again, you know, he's not a super big fan of children. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. He thought women shouldn't have to have unwanted pregnancies. And, you know, this is 130 years before we're going to have standardized birth control. He also thought that women should be allowed to wear what almost looks like pants, like a bloomer Ooh. style pants. Ooh, we got pants? Yes. This was big like deal. 60 years before we got pants. Yeah, it's a big deal. Women are going to do most of the same jobs that men do. Um, And you're rotated. So you're assigned a position. You work there for a little while and then you rotate again. They are going to work in business and sales. They do all of the labor men do. Now, they also did most of the cooking and childcare, but not all of it. So we really do see a kind of reshaping of what gender roles would mean. He has this idea that women should consent to the sexual relationships they're in. So again, that real basic idea of consent, light years ahead of where we're at everywhere else. And And he thought that sexual relationships should be satisfying for women and not just men. All that sounds great. I'm still stuck on the sexual initiation of children. Yeah, but. yeah. It, it, like I said, it's it's hard to talk about this because there are some things that are great. And well, there are other things that are really bad. That's part of how they get you. And when we talk about another great organization a little later on, that's true too, right? Some of it is good. That's how, that's the lure. Right, because um, nobody to says, draw hey, you in. you want to join my cult. It's, hey, do you want to go live with me in a place where women are equals to men? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's go do that. I mean, I'm still looking for it. And it's... <laughs> but at least you have pants. I do have pants. So tell me how we get to silverware. So Noise is getting older. He's kind of bogged down the day-to-day running of a commune because, you know, it is a lot. And so he tried to hand it off to his son. That does not work. Um, his son does not have any kind of charisma. His son is just kind of a jerk. People don't want to follow him. And so Noise tries to come back. He tries to fix it, but the damage is done and the group starts to dissolve. Now, keep in mind that we have formed some very, very complex relationships here. And it's going to be hard for these people to leave this group and start over in other places. So rather than the group completely dissolving, um, a few members are going to stay around. And in 1881, they're going to convert the community to a joint stock company called Oneida Community. And that's where you get your silverware. So wait, 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 wait. Because they have been living this inter- 
mingled complex marriage lifestyle. And mm-hmm. because they don't have easily, let's say, separable family units, mm-hmm. that when the cult dissolves, they just form a silverware company. Right. Because they have to have a way to make money and stay productive. Together. Yes. Now, once the group dissolves and becomes that silver company, those practices that they've all been engaging in slowly start to die out. So we're going to see more children being born. We're going to see people getting in traditional monogamous marriages. But it's not like we're in complex marriage on Monday and then you're getting a monogamous marriage on Tuesday. It's a slow slide into that. But there's no one there to enforce those doctrines. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So they naturally fall away. Yeah, and if you want to read more about this, I don't. There, somebody else might want to. There's a book called Oneida From Free Love Utopia to a Well Set Table. And this <laughs> is my, it's a great title. I love it. Ellen Wayland Smith, and she is a descendant of noises. So you can get kind of an inside perspective. And the Nice Try podcast, which is a podcast about attempts at utopia, their episode four is about the Oneida community. It's hard not to get sucked in when you start learning about the Oneidas. So let's talk about modern cults. And when I say modern, I mean, since we've had color photography, I don't know what what the cutoff line is, but I'm thinking... From a historical perspective, modern is anything after World War II. Okay. So after World War II cults. And there are lots of different ways that people talk about these organizations. And these are not mutually exclusive categories by any means. And in fact, most of the organizations we talk about fits into multiple categories. But sometimes people research and talk about destructive cults. And so that's exactly what it sounds like. Members of those organizations kill or injure themselves or others. So we're talking about physically dangerous, destructive cults. They exhibit drastic personality or physical changes. Um, They become unrecognizable in demeanor to people who knew them before they joined. There's abuse within the organization. So if we think about Jim Jones and the People's Temple, if we think about David Koresh, And the Waco Branch Davidians, those were very destructive organizations, lots of abuse, very drastic personality changes, absolute authoritarian leaders. So not just charismatic leaders, but authoritarian leaders who they themselves usually become the object of worship. At the very least, what they say is gospel. Things sort of just turn into how much are you willing to do for your leader and the ends justify the means. So... We're trying to make the world a better place. We're trying to get salvation, which those ends can justify just about anything in the eyes of the the leader and the organization. And so that's how they justify these destructive behaviors is we're, our end goal is making the world a better place. And if that means a few people get hurt on the way there, it's worth it. Whatever the leader asks you to do, don't worry if it's criminal, if it's immoral, the goal is bigger than your personal code of ethics. We're here to improve the world. And so that's how people end up being willing to die or kill or let their children die or commit these crimes or these things that they would have six months or two years ago never, ever would have imagined doing. Uh, And some cults are doomsday cults. And again, 
a lot of these cults are parts or belong to multiple categories here. These are these are organizations focused on a predicted disaster or apocalypse. Members are often committed to the founder's prophecy. So they're not just the object of worship, but they are prophesizing the end of the world, the end times. Often the people who are in doomsday cults tend to be people who have dropped in and out of men, many other religions, and they just haven't found meaning before joining this one. And this gives them a very specific purpose. And for some people, that end date and um, salvation by the end times is alluring. And so many members continue in the organization even after you know, the day after the prophecy doesn't come true. Good examples of that are Heaven's Gate uh, and the Manson family. They were waiting for Helter Skelter. Non-religious cults are, like you said, very interesting. And that's part of how they kind of trick people is it's not a religion. So people immediately think, well, it can't be a cult because it's not a religion. So these are self-help groups, which we're going to talk about in great detail, like Nexium. Sometimes the multi-level marketing organizations turn out to be cults. And sometimes we're talking about political radicals. And these were really popular in the 70s and 80s. These aren't as popular now, necessarily. I think or, um, they're coming back. They're coming <laughs> back in style. Yeah, yeah, actually, I think you're right. So you're not going to let me talk about Nexium, are you? Not yet. It's coming, everyone, I promise. Before we get to that, um, I just want to really briefly go through some research about what modern cults have as far as an effect on women. I'm going to say this is not a super deep well of research. I wish there was more there. I think part of the problem is that these groups are relatively rare. And then once somebody leaves a group like this, it's hard to get them to want to talk about that experience with an academic. Because if you're talking to an academic, you know we're writing things down. We're going to publish it. This isn't therapy. So. I think it's hard for groups to be really studied in a way that we would like them to be, especially groups that continue on, right? So what we do know about cults of women is that oftentimes in a cult, reproductive choices of women are hyper-controlled. So the bodies of women become almost commodities. It is almost like rationed out who gets to have children and who does not, um, who is allowed maybe to have choices in that realm, who is not allowed to have choices. And in a lot of ways, women are used to lure men into these groups. Men are told that if they join, there are women that are sexually available to them. Women are generally barred from leadership in cults. Mm -hmm. Not always. And we have some exceptions. They are going to be used to recruit and sometimes used as a way to maintain order. So some of the research that's done is um, in the women who surrounded Jim Jones. Jim Jones would not have been able to do what he did without the women who were behind him because they got everything set up and organized for him. He was um, far too chaotic. And that's true for a lot of cult leaders is that they they surround themselves or they bring on these initial women who give them credibility and make them seem a little bit safer, right? And exactly. they're often the first people that he has manipulated and he has personally manipulated them in forming kind of some kind of relationship with him. And that 
makes him seem safer because he has these women who trust him. And so it's it's a built-in um, system for giving him credibility. Right. Now, um, I said earlier women are not generally leaders, but there are some notable exceptions. Well, and I mean, most people's, most of the time, you know, there's rampant misogyny in people's minds that keep them from looking at women as potentially charismatic leaders or people who have special knowledge or information, right? Not that it's good to be a cult leader, but it's rare for a woman to be a cult leader because I think there's a bigger obstacle to overcome into getting people to follow a woman that way. You know, and thinking about it that way, it's almost the same reason why it's harder for a woman to be a politician. <laughs> Not that they're the same things. Are we talking about Nexium now or you what? Know what? Let's talk about Nexium. So can I ask you a question before we start? Yes. How do you know that that is said Nexium? Because I've listened to three podcasts and watched two documentary series. So I've heard it many times. Okay, because if I saw this just randomly out in the world, that's not how I would say that. If it was spelled phonetically, you still wouldn't know how to say it. That's true. So what do you, the common person, know about Nexium? So I'm going to answer this as if it was Friday, because I had not started watching The Vow yet. Okay. I believed that, <laughs> this is wrong, but I believed they were like um, an and multi-level marketing. I thought they sold yoga pants, but I'm now realizing that was Lululemon, I think. How and I know that there is an actress who was on Smallville that is involved. Why is that something you know? Because that's what was in all the New York Times articles. Okay. Like that was the headline, Smallville actress. I'm glad that you got them confused with the leggings company. But now I'm cleared up on that. I know better now. Okay, so Nexium was originally a multi-level marketing company, and then it morphed into something called Executive Success Programs, which was pretty much what it sounded like uh, on the surface. So they were, you know, they met in hotel meeting rooms or ballrooms, and they had these sessions where they coached people on becoming better executives. They, Did they ever have like a, a product they sold or was it only these like self-help courses? It was only these courses. Okay. So they had these self-improvement courses and it was, I mean, it was exactly the way that we have talked about these things operating. So you start with a very low commitment, something that doesn't cost a lot of money and can be done in a day or a weekend and then, you know, at the end of that, they're pitching to you, you know, a five-day intensive that usually costs $5,000. Today, you can get it for $3,000. Um, and so they try and get you to become more and more committed and to put more and more into the organization. But it was all about personal improvement. And they moved you up something called the Stripe Path. So members had sashes and the color of the sash denoted what stage of the path you were on. And the reason it was called stripe path is if you were white, you got three stripes and then you moved up to yellow and then you got three stripes and you moved up to the next color. And so that was one of the ways that they rewarded obedience was ranking you up. 
And if you took a certain number of classes and then you wanted to become a coach and then you worked for Nexium, and then you got paid based on the number of people you brought into Nexium. So multi-level marketing tactics here. And that's how people got involved to such a high degree is once they started working for Nexium, a lot of them either opened centers. So some of them opened a center, you know, some group of people opened a center in Vancouver, a, a center in Los Angeles and one in Mexico City. But the original hub is in Albany, New York. A lot of people just moved to Albany um, and they wanted to be near where all of the classes were and they wanted to be near where the leadership was. And so people just got increasingly, increasingly invested until some of them essentially disappeared from their families. It seems like this wasn't a disaster, destructive doomsday cult, right? If I say it started as a personal executive improvement course it was multi-level marketing. People got increasingly involved. That doesn't sound super destructive. But a lot of cult experts actually call the leader of Nexium, his name is Keith Ranieri, the most dangerous or most malicious of all of the cult leaders they've ever studied, including Jim Jones. What? I had not heard that. Why? So Rick Allen Ross, he's a cult expert. Uh, he says Nexium will go down in history as one of the most destructive cults in history. And he's saying this in the context of Waco and Heaven's Gate and everything else. Another cult expert, her name is Dr. Lalich. She says that Keith Ranieri is the most horrific, ab abusive cult leader that she has heard of in over 30 years of working in the field. His predatory nature, his cruelty, she says, quote, beyond the pale. So from the very first sessions, those very introductory sessions, they are already preparing members, you would might say grooming members, to consider things that sound innocuous, like you shouldn't choose to be a victim. You decide what emotions to feel. So that sounds empowering, right? You decide what emotions to feel. And that makes you think like, I can decide to feel happy or I can decide to get over this and I'm in control of myself. But really that like you create your own reality gives them this open window to say what you think is abusive isn't abusive. You're victimizing yourself. You're choosing to be a victim. You're choosing it. So this is all kind wow. of you know, everything that he does is borrowed from someone else. None of this is new information. It, some of it comes from multi-level marketing. Some of it is, swear to you, based on Amway's philosophies. A lot of it comes from Scientology. Some of it comes from The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Okay, so two questions first off. He, he's the one who put together this philosophy, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yes. Okay, and then two... Do you think he always had bad intentions when he yes, was putting together? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So you don't feel like this is a thing where he like suddenly realized, hey, I have all this control. No. You he set this up to have control. Yes. Okay. Because that, that idea that victims choose to be victims, that you aren't a victim unless you make yourself one, it's all groundwork for being able later to abuse you and say, I'm not abusing you. 
you've decided you're being abused. The second person in charge was a woman. She's actually the president of the organization. Her name was Nancy Saltzman. Her daughter was a leader in the organization. Her name was her name is Lauren Saltzman. They have they both also were arrested. So there's also a lot of interesting stories of, uh, to go along with Nancy Saltzman. She had a history and training in neurolinguistic programming called NLP, which is basically a way to hypnotize people using speech patterns. Okay. And this way of speaking and this manner of talking, she mastered it. And in all of the recordings, you can hear it. And she lulls people into submission with the way that she speaks. Huh. Okay, so this is probably a dumb question, but are Keith and Nancy together? Keith had a, he was together with a lot of people. Okay, so they're not like married or anything. But no, they're not married. She was his student. That's how they categorized their relationship. Okay, cool. So they did, again, typical stuff, increasing commitment, increasing costs, getting you to admit secrets of your traumas very early on. These sessions, they called them EMs, which is Exploration of Meaning. It's very similar to what Scientologists do, but they get you to basically admit to a huge trauma in the very first session. And they convince you that they've cured you of something, but they also get this secret information about you. In the first session. Yes. And they do it publicly and they do it very irresponsibly. And so they're not really teaching people to deal with trauma. They recruited rich and famous people to get instant credibility. And that's why they had people from Smallville and Battlestar Galactica and all, I mean, different heiresses and millionaires and people uh, who were members of Nexium. They rewarded obedience with those sashes and the ranking. And they, you got increased access and increased accolades. And it appeared to be a merit-based system, but the attractive, powerful, credible people got ranked up. And honestly, it worked kind of like Candy Crush. (laughs) So it's based on the same psychology here. You get a lot of success early on. And so that makes you feel um, connected and successful. And this is, you're powerful and this is good for you. And you're getting rewards for your behavior. And so you become kind of hooked and then you get stalled. And that makes you dependent on them. And that's the same way Candy Crush works. Mm -hmm. Because you're like looking for validation. Exactly. And it's like, I had success and now I want more success, but it's instantly harder. I'm instantly stalled. And in the case of Candy Crush, I'll give you 99 cents for a candy bomb. And in the case of a cult, I'll give you $10,000 for a seven-day intensive because you've convinced me that's what I need to improve myself to the point where I can get leveled up. Okay, so... In this group, there are men and women. Yes. But it's mostly women? No. Okay, so it's an even split, even-ish? Yeah. Okay. And they make you feel like they're the people who understand you, and that these are the people that you've been looking for your whole life. And so you start by saying, I came here to self-improve, and here are the things I want to work on about myself. But at some point, it almost becomes like, what was it called? Mutual criticism? Yes. It almost becomes that, right? And people are emboldened to say to you, you really need to work on your self-control. And of course, they have the solution for how to solve whatever problem they're pointing out in you. So if I start questioning the group, somebody might say like, oh, you're just a cynic. 
Exactly. Oh, oh, yeah. You're suppressive. You're you need to explore. You need to do an EM and figure out why you're feeling that way. But it's not that they're shady. It's that I'm paranoid. Exactly. So from the very, very beginning, they are normalizing and ritualizing bad things as good. So, for instance, if you went to the very first session with your mom, they would separate the two of you. They would put you in different groups. And they would say that's individuating you from your family. But what they're really doing is they're driving a wedge between the two of you. I mean, it doesn't sound bad, right? No, none of it sounds bad. None of it sounds bad at the beginning. Stuff that seems weird from the outside. Like everybody had to call him Vanguard. He kissed everyone on the lips. And I mean everyone. Every year there was a week-long retreat, like summer camp style, for his birthday week long and you had to go you didn't have to go but if you're not going you really need to figure out what's wrong with yourself you know (laughs) um casual conversations about what it means to be a sociopath and whether they're bad they if you wanted to talk to keith ranieri directly then you had to play volleyball with him at midnight if you watch and you're going to watch you're watching the value you're going to see it it's going to strike you as totally weird immediate deal breaker, red flag, run away. But remember, these people have been conditioned from the very moment they walked in the room. And dozens or hundreds of people around you, a lot of them your friends, some of them famous people, accept it, endorse it. And so at some point you question, what's wrong with me if I'm the only person in the room with a hang up about this? And that's the that's the mindset that they get in. If they look around and what he's saying is insane to you, but everyone else is smiling and nodding, then you have the hang up, right? And that's what that's how we define what's normal is what do most people do? And so it's hard to understand how it happened, but in in the room, it's very hard to have been any different. And this is actually what you were just talking about with cult leaders is one of his former partners, like his romantic partner, called herself and the other women who were in long-term relationships with him, she called herself his sheep's clothing. So she makes him look safe. Exactly. And so he had these women who he lived with, non-monogamous relationships, and most of them all lived together. And so she said these women were his sheep's clothing. They made him look safe and trustworthy. And the cult experts say he knew how to desensitize people so that they would be willing to do or accept increasingly horrific things without feeling anything. And that's just the beginning. That's not even getting into the groups they had just for women. Okay, so there is a group that is limited. So Jeunesse was a group just for women. It was a women's empowerment group. Nancy Salzman introduced this as the first women's movement created by a man. I don't like that. It it was a women's empowerment group, supposedly, but it was rife with misogyny. And a lot of it was, here's what men are like, and here's what women are like, and men and women are different. Women are being led to believe these misogynistic ideas, but they're in feminist terms. So, for instance, just like offhand comment, Nancy Salzman would say, well, remember, men think and women feel. Ew. Yes. 
And so some of them end up believing that a group where they are slaves to other women and they I'm use sorry. Yep. I'm going to need you to stop. When you say slaves to other women, are you using that like metaphorically? That's what they called it. They use the word slave. Yes, they use the term master and slave. In America. That's correct. Wow. They branded them. Okay. I haven't got this far yet. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. And these Jeunesse tracks were money makers, right? Women paid money to attend them. And it was, it was, you know, multi-level marketing. So if I got you to go, then I got money for it. And some of this curriculum included discussions of rape that essentially said that rape is only bad if the victim decides that it is and that you choose to be victimized instead of empowered. I don't even have words to talk about that. That is so offensive. He is on camera saying sometimes calling it abuse is the abuse. No. He calls it self-victimization. But again, but I've, everyone around you is nodding. And you have been conditioned. You have been indoctrinated. And how do you know whether or not to trust your instincts if all of these people around you are smiling and nodding? If you're the outlier, does that mean that you're the problem? So piece by piece, very intentionally, this is ratcheted up. And yes, this is how eventually these women were conditioned, manipulated, controlled, threatened, blackmailed into having sex with Keith Raniere. Which was his ultimate goal in addition to just making lots of money. According to all of these women, yes. According no. to the testimony and the documentary evidence, yes. He has been convicted of, of several crimes. So, again, I've just started the vow. I've watched, I think, one episode. This guy doesn't look like he could be a manager at a Target. I mean, he just doesn't look very, like, I don't know, confident or self-assured or, I don't know, charismatic to me. Some of it, I think, is the conditioning and the indoctrination from the very beginning. But, yes, I think a lot of people found him to be alluring. He also told people a lot of things about himself that are maybe not true. That he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the highest IQ on record. I mean, he called himself a scientist and a philosopher. And he told people he had multiple or people were led to believe that he had multiple graduate degrees in philosophy and physics and something else. And he just I mean, I mean, he had like two bachelor's degrees and a C average or something. But yeah, he gave himself this backstory. I think that made him look more interesting. But if you're in a room full of people who are looking at him doe-eyed, then you're going to start looking at him a little differently, probably. And there was also a group for men called the Society of Protectors. Oh, I hate that. And and it was almost militant. Some people think that he was actually preparing, I mean, laying the groundwork for it to become a militant group, but it was the men's group. And so they talk about how hard it was to be raised as a little boy because boys weren't allowed to hit girls, but girls were allowed to hit boys. And what does that do to your self-esteem as a boy? And I mean, some of that's legitimate, not a lot of it. <laughs> But it's hard to, I mean, it's... Nobody it's should get hit. 
Right. There's there are traumas in people's childhoods. And he also kind of justifies a lot of male, a lot of misogynistic beliefs. So he refers to men very righteously as being hungry, fucky beasties. I don't like that either. And somebody walks out of this this SOP training and says, this is the Harvard of trying to relate to women. And so the women went through it and they said at the, at the end, they felt grateful for it. And now looking back, they're like, they made us feel grateful for abuse. And that's why it's so dangerous because it was just totally insidious indoctrination. So when people are paying for these courses, do you know how much like the average course costs? I'm sure it's not cheap, right? D depending on the day between two and $10,000. Whoa, a day? But no, 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 like depending on the number of days. So if it was short, oh. one or $2,000, if it was like an intensive, it could be $10,000. Yes. But it actually never really was a very profitable enterprise. But there were a lot of rich people who were members who I think were basically bankrolling it the whole time. So yeah, if it was really just a, a business or an economic venture, then he wasn't very successful. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. It was not economically successful. And people started casting doubt on this organization in 2003. There was a Forbes article that called it a cult of personality. There was a 2010 article that essentially said it was a, a sex cult. And they were able to dismiss it internally they had all th this financial backing. And so they kind of sued people into submission in some cases. And a lot of people who left felt that they were being, you know, stalked or traced or humiliated. Some people who left the organization were sued in their perspective, being sued into submission. And, you know, all of this comes from accounts of people who have left. And I'm sure that the, the leadership of the organization disputes all of it. They they did crazy stuff. I mean, they conducted fright experiments on women where they just made women watch horrible images and like measured their brain waves while it happened. There are people who have gone missing, presumed dead. Some people said that they just like had a psychotic break, like broke from reality because of how much they were their minds were being messed with. He abuses people or people now looking back say I was abused and and so who's who's to blame? Me for manipulating you into having sex or the people around you who are suppressive and who are making you feel bad for it? So, I mean, very carefully calculated every step of the way. The more important question is why do people join cults in the first place, right? We have a, a human urge for answers and absolute truths. All of us do. Yeah. We are looking for belonging and cults provide that cults often love bomb new members right they just dote on them to a degree that makes you feel like i belong here and these people accept me they create this illusion of persecution right like we are together we understand each other but the outside world doesn't get us so then it's us versus them and that brings you more into the fold they're responding to these natural needs that people have. And you might think that only some people are at risk of becoming involved in a cult. Most of us feel that way. Most of us think I would never do that. Right. There is no one kind of cult member. They are not dumber. They are not less aware. They are not less thoughtful than you or me. 
circumstances are more significant than personality. There isn't a personality type that joins a cult. It has to do more with the circumstances of your life, which means it could happen to anyone. They're usually psychologically healthy. They're probably going through some kind of normal life blip. Uh, it could be a breakup. It could be upheaval. It could be that you're not as successful in your career as you want to be. Something makes you amenable to their messaging. And so most of them are recruited by a friend or a family member or someone they trust. Indoctrination. And your family is not going to lead you to something bad, you think. Right, right. Indoctrination takes weeks or sometimes months. Many people are just trying to fit in or be amenable. So you go to the first session, you don't really know anybody, and you're just kind of being nice. You're going with the flow, and then you kind of get swept up in that flow. A lot of times, guilt, shame, fear are used to manipulate people. That's why they get you to confess your deepest, darkest secrets on the very first session. And the whole environment discourages questioning and critical thinking and second guessing. And that's a flaw. What 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 keeps you from what's keeping you from progressing? What's keeping you from trusting? And every time you make a compromise, it makes it harder for you to admit that you've been deceived. Does that make sense? So every time you make a you do something that you think is a little questionable, it makes it harder for you to leave because you've done all of these questionable things. And if you leave, then you have to admit all of those things were mistakes. And so there's a researcher named Margaret Thaler Singer, and she has done a lot of research to kind of explain that it's you're not me. It would never happen to me. Mindset is not really accurate. She says, the public takes care of their fear by thinking only crazies and stupid people wind up in cults. I've interviewed over 4,000 ex-cult members. There's no one type of person who is vulnerable. Most people may admit grudgingly that they are influenced slightly by advertising. Beyond that, they want to preserve a myth in which other persons are weak-minded and easily influenced, but they are strong-minded. People cherish this fantasy that manipulators confront, browbeat, and argue people into doing their bidding. But most manipulation is subtle and covert. All cults pose a danger. A lot of them don't lead you to your death or, or brand you or inflict bodily harm, but there's loss of freedom, damage to relationships, stunting mental, emotional growth. Children who are raised in cults are especially affected by the absence of critical thinking Children can be deprived of developmental activities like friendships or socialization and, and milestones because you grew up in this sheltered environment. They're all dangerous to some degree, but not all of them are as outrageous as the ones that we have talked about today. But to answer your question that you asked me 20 minutes ago, um, <laughs> just, I mean, remember that believing something shouldn't come at a high cost. It shouldn't require the loss of your family or your friendships. No organization can solve every problem or answer every question. No one should require its members to sacrifice what they believe is right and true for the good of the group or the good of the leader. And just be aware of times that you are personally susceptible to certain influences and you just have to be aware of that and you have to guard the people that you care about the same way. And the other thing is distinguish between the joking use of the term cult and the reference to a potentially dangerous organization. It's 
it can lead you to not take the word seriously. So right. um, they were calling Nexium a cult as early as 2003. And it was very easy for Nexium to dismiss that criticism because uh, that word didn't mean as much. Well, if as it should a have. Cult, nothing's a cult. Exactly. If CrossFit is a cult, then who cares if Nexium is a cult? Exactly. And this is a depressing episode. Well, I mean, a lot of them are, but but the good <laughs> news, I mean, to end on a high note. That's kind um, of our brand. Well, this isn't a high note. Cults are especially dangerous for women because a lot of times the leaders are men and a lot of times the motive that that man has ultimately is sexual. Or if they are these religious fundamentalist organizations having a lot of children becomes a priority and so women are commodified. Cults are are, are dangerous, period, but especially insidiously dangerous for women. I think I've said the word insidious like 10 times today. So that's my word of the day. But yeah, and I, I mean, that's why it's important for us to talk about. That's why it's important for people to be aware of. It, it's not something that only happens to, to, to dummies and losers. It could happen to literally anyone. And I don't mean that as a scary thing. I mean it as an empathy thing. Like these are human people that this happened to. And we all can understand how it happened and therefore we can be aware of when it happens to other people that we care about. Yeah, that really wasn't a high note. You're right. It wasn't. The high <laughs> note is um, the high note is that Keith Raniere was already convicted of several crimes and that he if he hasn't been sentenced by the time this airs, then he will be sentenced very soon. Uh, several people in the organization actually pled guilty to the crimes because they had movie makers who were members of the cult. And so they thought everything that Keith Raniere ever said was worthy of archiving. So everything oh. is on video, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of video. And there are people who were members of Nexium who defend it, who say it wasn't malicious, who say that they grew personally, that it was beneficial to them, that Keith is being cast in a uh, bad light that there's malfeasance on the part of the prosecutor. There are people who say that nobody really committed any crimes and everything was consensual and, you know, people are taking things out of context. And that is a position that many people take. He has been convicted of crimes, but he maintains his innocence and many people defend him. He I hasn't like learned a lesson. The headline on the New York Times this week is sex cult leader facing life sentence regrets nothing. I will tell you that he was convicted of sex trafficking, racketeering, and possession of child pornography. Oh. And I also feel real bad for the guy who wrote the article in 2003 because he tried to tell people then that it was a cult. I can't believe it was that long ago. Like, that really surprised me. Good for us for ending on a high note. But I mean, the high note is he's he's in jail. Yes. And no matter how many billionaires were bankrolling him and no matter how many people are still supporting him, the fact is women and men left. They spoke out and they fought really, really hard to get this published in the New York Times, 
to get the FBI and the prosecutors in New York to take it seriously. They fought and fought and fought. They gathered evidence. They put together documentation. And these women, some of whom were his romantic partners and some of whom were members of the organization, they did all of this work and it worked. It brought down this person who seemed untouchable, untouchable. They brought down this person who was supported by billionaires. They brought down this person who was surrounded by famous actors. They brought him down and he is in prison. Is that enough of a high note? I mean, I guess it's as high as we ever get. I don't know why people (laughs) listen to us, honestly. So I guess uh, what's next in your lady life? (laughs) Well, we are deciding in our neighborhood how to celebrate Halloween and we will do what, I mean, we haven't decided as of today what we're going to do. The options are not have trick-or-treating or put candy in individual gift bags, and we'll see. But Halloween is next in my lady life. That is also next in my lady life. Uh, we have some friends that are in our COVID bubble, and they're <laughs> they're having a Halloween party. Their daughter's the same age as ours. But we're going to treat it basically like Easter. So they're hiding candy all over their house. Yeah, actually, that's the that's the best recommendations for people who don't want to go trick-or-treating is to do lots of Easter activities. So decorate pumpkins instead of eggs, um, have a candy hunt, and do those kinds of indoor or more at-home activities. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and my favorite Halloween candy is Snickers. And I'm Allegra. My favorite Halloween candy is Reese's Pumpkins. We would love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, emailing us, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend, but do not unduly influence them to listen. And remember, vote. If you haven't already, you got one more chance, and that's election day, so vote. And if you have voted, then go get a flu shot. Authoritarian leadership. <laughs>